Welcome to Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Hello, I'm Dan Jurgen, Vice Chairman of IHS Market, and I want to welcome you to Week Conversations presented by IHS Market. I'm very pleased today to be talking with Sharif Suki, who is Executive Chairman of Tellurian. Of course, Sharif is also really the pioneer of US LNG, having originally founded Chenier, which became the first major US LNG exporter. A lot's changed since that time, and this is a great opportunity to talk with somebody who really understands and looks to the future of the LNG industry about where it's all going. So, Sharif, let me welcome you. Dan, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here with you today. Well, I've looked forward to the opportunity to talk with you about these themes. And let me begin by just asking you about the year 2020. We're pretty far along in it now. Uh, how has the LNG industry been affected? Well, of course, like everything else, first we pressed the big pause button at the beginning of the year in March. Uh, when the impact of COVID started to become felt and started slowing everything down. And um, we had a very interesting uh, next three months where everybody was trying to figure out how to connect with people. As you know, then the LNG business is very much driven by personal relationships and the ability to travel, to go and see people and talk to them in their own environment is very important. And we could not do that. Thank God, uh, Zoom came on the scene and uh, we slowly got used to being able to do things um, as we're doing today by conference call and by video conferences. By June or July, the market had settled into the world has slowed down. The LNG business has slowed down just like the rest of the world. Uh, we're going to see how we come out of COVID, which was the big first criteria for everybody. And by July, everybody went on vacation around the world. And as you know, in a lot of places around the world, August is sacred. Um, and before we went on vacation, gas prices almost everywhere were running at all-time lows. So uh, the United States, Henry Hub was under $2. In Europe, TTF was under $2. And in Asia, JKM was a little bit over $2, nothing very impressive. And everybody figured they were gonna go home, relax, do whatever they're gonna do with their stay staycations as opposed to vacations. And they came back in September, and so did we. And lo and behold, the world had changed in six weeks. Gas prices everywhere had gone up dramatically, 30, 40% in a matter of a few weeks. So uh, you're looking at the end of September today and you're going, um, Henry Hub is now at $3 for calendar 21 next year. Um, major change from big before the summer. TTF is now going to almost $5, $4.65. So Sharif, why this dramatic change in prices? Uh, mostly because American prices have gone up. So the first lesson from this now is that the importance of American prices on a global basis. So TTF and to a larger extent JKM in Asia 
are now reacting directly to what is happening in the U.S. And the, the globe has become connected for the LNG business and in general, the, the, the natural gas business. So, so what, is, so so what is happens it, here has an impact on the rest of the world. So have we actually reached a stage where we have a single global LNG gas market? Not yet, but soon. So let me explain. The fact that we're not drilling with enough rigs in the United States is, is forcing prices to go up in the US. And you're already starting to see that trend. Surprisingly, the same thing is happening in Asia. Um, you're seeing uh, the Asian benchmarks going very quickly, very well correlated with the United States prices. It has only happened for the last three months, so it's hard to say that there is a trend that uh, has been established. But if it continues like this, um, you will see a better correlation on a longer term basis and you will be able to rely on it. The American part of the LNG market today is 20%. And in fact, we still have a number of projects that are under construction, unlike, unlike the rest of the world. And uh, our share of the global LNG market is going to continue to increase for the next two or three years. So that means the U.S., in a sense, will be the price setter for the global market? I think so. Yeah. It's hard to say with certainty yet, but it's going in that direction. And I think once you can establish uh, that the correlation does exist, uh, then you will have a much more liquid JKM market in Asia, and it will be very well correlated to what mm -hmm. is happening in Asia. And US. for those who don't know, JKM means Japan, Korea market. That's the, the price. So in a way, as I'm listening to you, you know, there's this question, what's the impact going to be overall on energy, oil and gas supply in two or three years of the cutbacks in investment. And I think as I'm listening to you, you're saying, well, we're already having a sort of uh, a, uh, a, a dry run of that or a, a test case of that with the change in the price of uh, LNG. That is exactly right. I mean, the world is relying on th three major areas for their LNG on a global basis, Australia, Qatar, and the United States now. So that, those are the top three. Russia wants to make a big move and also be part of the top three. But at the moment, given the projects that are currently under construction, uh, in the next year or two, the US will take the leading spot. And then we'll see who decides politically to continue to decide to build infrastructure or not. So, do, you do, you think that, uh, do you think that it's, what you're saying is there'll be a big three and the US will be the leader as it is in oil? Do you think it'll be a big four that, in fact, that Russian LNG is surprising people by the scale and the speed with which it's coming on? I would never discount what Novatech says because they're very determined, they're very good at what they do. They certainly are very large reserves in Russia, so it's plausible. And uh, on that basis, it is possible, but it's also uh, riddled with challenges. It's very difficult to get that done. Right. So to just to finish on 2020 and where we're now, what you're seeing happening, has the industry been resilient? How resilient has the industry been, do you think, in this, uh, this incredible year? I think you're seeing us hobbling around trying to make sure that we survive as an industry because the business model is broken. We've gone from a one point to one point market where people were 
very predictable in terms of whether we're going to produce the molecules and whether we're going to sell them. And the, the, the model has been broken. Um, it used to be related to a Brent pricing. It is now related also to a Henry Hub pricing. But those, both those models have shown that they can uh, be very costly to people who enter into a long-term contract. As all commodities, as the volumes increase, you're finding yourself in a situation where you don't need to enter into long-term contracts and you're relying on the spot market to continue to evolve. That is what is happening. We now have a market that is over 400 million tons in VCF per day, that's probably around um, uh, about 50, 60 BCF a day that's, as, that's close to the size of, two thirds of the size of the American market. That's right. And, uh, so th that's a very significant market and it's very fungible. You've got a tremendous amount of inventory on the water uh, because you have at any given time 300 ships that can carry a total of a TCF worth of gas, uh, which is very flexible. You can make a phone call and call a ship and have it redirected for not much. So it is becoming a truly liquid market. So does that, that mean happens? Yeah, I was going to ask you just to ask about that before we go finish the sentence, actually. Does that mean gas LNG becomes more like oil, becomes a traded commodity? Yes, but it's going to take some time. I think at the moment, you don't have a strong uh, incentive to enter into a long-term contract. So you focus as all commodities to try to be in the top quarter in terms of your costs. Uh, but the market has not evolved sufficiently where the financial instruments represent uh, a big premium to the physical movement of the commodity. So in oil, if I remember correctly, the relationship of uh, financial to physical is something like 30 to one. We're probably going at one to one to two to one in the LNG business. So we're still a long way from having a market that you can actually hedge in order to be able to understand where your flows are gonna go. So we still have some uh, way to go. Uh, JKM has made enormous progress in terms of liquidity, but it's going to take, I'd, I'd say, at least another five years where we have a truly uh, liquid, financially hedgeable market. And that, and of course, during that five years, additional supplies will be coming into the market. And uh, At the moment, then, there is nothing that is coming on the market of any significance besides... Um, a few projects. So the market has come very strongly for the last two or three years, but now um, it's tapering off. There's very little capacity that's coming in the next five years. And these projects take a long time to bring to fruition. So if between now and 2025, I don't see much happening. So if that is the case, then do you see a very different supply demand balance? If you look out two or three years from where we are now? We're at an inflection point now. I think it's going to happen in the next 18 months. Right. And will that then start people uh, sanctioning new projects? or well, If they can figure out what business model they want to use. Uh, right. If you look at the three major projects that have happened in 2019, uh, LNG Canada sponsored by Shell, Golden Pass sponsored by Qatar Gas, uh, Qatar Petroleum and uh, Exxon and Arctic LNG with the support of Total. 
All three of them were done without any offtake agreement. They were done on the company's balance sheets. So the, 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 those volumes are going to be on the spot market. Uh, people who need to finance their projects uh, have not figured out what is the new business model that actually works. Right. So you were instrumental, central, and key to the launch of the first wave of US LNG business. So building upon what you just said, uh, as you see, when, it, when there is a next wave, or the next wave comes of US LNG, how different will it be? It will need to be an integrated project where you know that you, what your cost of production is, where you have access to the cheapest basin that you can find, shortest distance in order to get to the LNG facility and putting it on the water at the cheapest possible cost. Uh, th that integrated piece would make the difference. Trying to do a Henry Hub plus project would be extremely difficult. Because, of, because, of, because of the volatility? Because of the volatility of Henry Hub. Right. And will buyers come to then want spot cargoes or will they want long-term contracts when if prices go up? If you're, a small, if you're a small buyer, you will be happy in the spot market, pretty much like uh, the oil business. If you're a significant buyer, you will need to secure your production. And the only way to do this is to make sure that uh, you're represented in the whole value chain from the resource itself to the liquefaction capacity, including the transportation from one to the other. And at least have your gas on the water at the cheapest possible cost. So you um, describe what you think is the new model and how to do it. Does that have any correlation with the model of uh, your driftwood project? Yes, this is exactly what we've been trying to do for, as you pointed out before in our conversation, before the, the, the being online, um, it's been four and a half years. We spent the first two years making sure we had our ducks in a row and we could get uh, a good construction company, Bechtel, with whom we've worked a lot in the past, because that part is critical and very important. Being able to deliver the infrastructure on time and on budget is critical. And then we've been searching for the new business model in this new world that we're living in now. So it's becoming a commodity. It's very hard to understand why any potential customer would be interested in entering into a 20 year contract where they're at risk a very significant portion of the time. What's the status of the Driftwood project now? We have all our permits. We have our construction costs from Bechtel. We have the pipelines that we need to get to the Haynesville. We have some small production in the Haynesville already that is very attractive at current prices now. And we are in discussions with 2,000 different counterparties. I don't want to call them buyers because they will be, in effect, our partners. They will mm -hmm. own a piece of the plant with us. So what took you back? The Haynesville was one of the earliest areas for uh, the shale gas uh, revolution, the shale gale, as we called it. What drew you back to the Haynesville? I mean, it's not been at the top of the list of, for activity in recent years. Well, when we started with a blank piece of paper, we looked at six or seven different basins around the country, including the Marcellus, including uh, the Fayetteville, including the Barnett. And uh, from an economic standpoint, strictly at the wellhead, the Haynesville is very competitive. 
So we were happy with the full production cost, full cycle production cost, which we think are slightly under $2 in MMBTU. And if you go to the big players there, whether it's Indigo or Chesapeake or uh, Comstock or a variety of other people, they all have pretty much the same numbers, give or take 10 cents. For us, because we found the Driftwood site, it's only 20 cents away by pipeline from the site. So that's very manageable. It's almost entirely within Louisiana. And if it's not, it goes a little bit into Texas. Manageable areas to be able to build the pipeline infrastructure. A variable cost at the facility itself are going to be 60 or 70 cents. And our debt service is going to be in the same order of magnitude. So this is where we felt that we could uh, deliver gas on the water in the form of LNG at the cheapest possible cost in the US. Um, it's a big resource. The Haynesville is about 400 TCF of gas. The proved reserves are 150 TCF of gas. That, those are very, very large numbers. So you put them in context on a global basis, uh, people got excited, excited about Mozambique because of 100 TCF, about East Med, for 60 TCF, maybe going to about 100 if they continue to have the discoveries at the pace they're going between Egypt, Israel, uh, Cyprus, and so on and so forth. So the 150 T's right here in Louisiana is an enormous resource. And we can produce it for a long time, around $2 in MMBTU. And in terms of permitting, you, you say you have most of your permits, you don't have to- We have all of them. You don't have to cross a lot of borders. No, we're good. So we're, the, the permits are done um, and we're in good stead. And when do you, has construction started yet? Or? I hope if I'm right about the direction of the market that people around the world would start uh, focusing seriously about starting things uh, because they will see prices go up on a global basis. They will understand the correlation with American prices and they will need to secure some options for themselves that are not really deliverable until five years down the road. So mm -hmm. if we do something next year, uh, it'll be available in 25, 26. Yeah. So people so have to start planning ahead. Yeah, so which will you know, come, as always, it comes more quickly than you think it will. Uh, do, you, do you think that the recovering LNG prices that we're seeing is a sign of economic recovery or a sign of the redu reduced gas from uh, North America and the reduced drilling? Uh, then it's a combination of both, because you look at the increase in demand in China and India and the rest of Asia, and it's very significant. So it's in the order of seven, eight uh, percent. Granted, some of it was because prices were very low, but I don't think they have much of a choice. It's not an issue of global warming or climate control. It's mostly an issue of pollution and yeah. that you can get around. You can have different views on what global warming is doing, but at the end of the day, if you're creating a health issue because of pollution in your major cities, you don't have a choice. In Europe, surprisingly, you're having a very strong comeback also because all of a sudden, carbon prices have increased to a level by $35 a ton now, where they're making coal very uh, unattractive. So in order for gas, uh, to not be overtaken by, by, by coal in, um, in, it, in Europe, it needs to stay over 450 if your carbon price is, um, it is $35 a ton. 
And that's what you're seeing. The, the European price for 2021 is now $4.65. So, and, and this is reflecting in part the fact that there is a shortage of uh, LNG supply, in part uh, also probably because of Nord Stream 2. And then finally, because carbon prices have gone to the level now where they discourage the use of coal. And so uh, how do you see the, basically the rig activity in the United States? You know, we've been so accustomed for so many years now to this oversupply of gas. Uh, are there enough rigs at work? No, we, as of the last count last week, there's 75 gas rigs in utilization today. And if you want to maintain the production at the level where it was at the beginning of the year, you need to have 200 uh, rigs uh, working. So with that, what we've seen is gas production in the United States drop from 95 BCF a day at the beginning of the year to 87 as of this week. And, on that, on, and if we continue with 75 rigs, we're going to continue to lose a BCF and a half a day every month. And on that basis, if we don't do something, uh, you're going to have a serious shortage coming out of storage next year. Uh, I mean, month. it's so surprising because the North American market has been so accustomed to oversupply for so long that it was taken to be a permanent situation. Well, no, as we know in the U.S., uh, that nothing is permanent. It changes mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah. So, so we react to market forces. There is right. no political decision to do one thing rather than another. Market forces have said prices are very low because we were oversupplied, which was true. We had the additional factor of associated gas that came because oil prices were high. And that was a surprise too. I think if you'd asked me three or four years ago, uh, whether the Permian Basin would be a significant contributor to the gas picture, I would have said no, but uh, I, I would have been dead wrong. Right. So, so, so let me ask you, you, you touched on China, you touched on India. Say a little more about your expectations for the global market and how you see it changing. So six months ago, um, we would have said that in the next five years, India would require 25 million tons of additional LNG, so basically doubling their capacity. And China uh, would have required 50 million tons of additional LNG. And this was in a low price environment. But they've started to put the infrastructure in place in order to receive that, those kinds of volumes. So in China, for instance, there's about 50 million tons of regas capacity that's being added as we speak. So they're building the infrastructure both to receive the gas and to distribute it from the coast to the inside of the, the country in both places. And in Europe, surprisingly, also because finally switching away from coal is now being taken seriously, um, the same thing is happening. We're seeing some demand from Europe that we did not expect either. So on a global basis, the demand for natural gas for the foreseeable future is going to continue to grow. And yeah. it's going to substitute for coal, and it's going to substitute for oil, uh, and it's going to continue to be used. And if you source it at a reasonable price, this will continue. Yeah. Well, we certainly know in India, uh, the Indian government, uh, Minister Pradhan, is uh, pursuing and developing a $60 billion infrastructure to use natural gas in the economy. And it is striking sometimes, uh, Sharif, 
that when you talk to people from emerging markets who, as you say, are very focused on pollution and poverty, uh, they uh, are pretty interested in bringing more natural gas into their economies in a way that might surprise somebody living in the Netherlands or Germany. Well, uh, then I watched uh, your interview with Minister Predan um, and on, on the same uh, webcast that we're doing now. And it was very, I mean, it, it confirms it. I've met with the, the minister a number of times over the last uh, 24 months. It's consistent. He understands what the issue is going to be in India. And he is actively trying to do something about it, which is why Prime Minister Modi came to the United States um, a year and a half ago. Uh, and made a big production about how important American natural gas is for the Indian economy. So. Uh, it is when people, you know, I, I find when I talk to p other people in this country, they don't understand the impact the U.S. gas development and oil development has had in relations with other countries. But India is a prime example of where it's created a whole new dimension to the relationship. And I would say that in China, it's pretty much the same thing, except we don't have the same kind of cordial relation. So um, right. it, it's kind of masked, but American molecules either find their way to China or substitute for other molecules um, and fill a gap somewhere else so that other energy can go to China. So it's all connected and it's all important. And China and India cannot continue to grow their reliance on uh, natural gas without uh, being impacted and having an impact on American gas. So you've talk, we just talked about, of course, the importance of gas in the relationship with uh, India. Do you want to say a little bit about how natural gas LNG exports from the U.S. fit into the relationship with China and your perception of how the Chinese see those uh, that source? Well, I mean... For India, Prime Minister Modi made a statement about a week ago that uh, how important natural, American natural gas is to the relationship between India and the United States. So I mean, you can't make a blunter, more direct statement. In the case of China, President Xi just made a big announcement about how he wants to be carbon neutral by, two, by 2060. There is no way he can do it without having a major role for natural gas in his country. And if they're serious about curbing pollution, they have to do what is available today, which is natural gas, and get away from coal, and get away from oil. To what degree do you think LNG fits into uh, the resolving the trade issues between the US and China? It'll be a prominent piece because this is something that we have and it's something that they need. And so we're gonna be the largest well, we're already the largest producer of natural gas in the world. We're going to be the largest exporter of natural gas also uh, in the next two or three years. We're going to be the largest exporter of LNG in the next two or three years. And if we have those things on the other side of the pond, you have the largest buyer of, uh, of LNG. There's no way that the largest seller and the largest buyer can get around uh, doing business together. Well, We're gonna be, have to, the molecules have to flow from one place to the other. Well, that would be a positive in a relationship that in other dimensions is becoming more troubled. It will be a positive factor in hopefully solving some of the trouble that exists in the relationship. Right. It's complex, it's complicated, uh, but this is one element that actually 
argues in favor of doing more rather than less together. Well, the, as a last question or last topic area, Sharif, the two most common words that are being used uh, today, uh, as I write in, uh, in the, my new book, The New Map, is energy transition. It has different meanings to different people. Some of the goals are becoming very specific with uh, specific dates on them. Uh, LNG is a very big business, as you say. It's going to continue to grow. How does it fit into the overall discussion about the energy transition, in your view? So when you look at what's happening around the world, you, 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 there is an urgency in trying to deal with the issues of climate change and uh, the effect on, 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 uh, on climate. Um, it, it's critical. Um, I don't know of a better way of doing this than what the Europeans are finally doing successfully, which is put the price on carbon, because it gives you a strong incentive to um, actually figure out different ways of uh, mitigating whatever impact you're going to have. Whether the impact is carbon sequestration or planting trees, very simply, but it's effective, or uh, promoting other uh, sources of energy, uh, I, I think it's very difficult to plan ahead for this because in the beginning, everything is promising. And then you start finding the limitations to every source of energy. Everything has a problem. If you want batteries, you're going to have a problem with lithium. You want, uh, you want windmills, you're going to have a problem with... Um, with the windmills when you need to retire them. And you don't know where uh, the inflection point is going to happen. It may go very quickly from 0 to 5% and then more slowly from 5 to 10%. And when you get to 10%, you have some issue. What are we going to do? Mine for lithium in the United States? The lithium that we find today is in China. We're we, we going to improve our relationship with them. If you talk to Bolivia or to Chile, they're already having an issue with the lithium mines. So everything is going to have some drawbacks that have to be taken into consideration. I think you have to keep an open mind, uh, have a proper balance between doing things reasonably, making sure that climate control um, is put in effect, and uh, at the same time, not punish people who don't have electricity or don't have fuel um, and who are aspiring to not the same living standards that we have in the West, but at least something that is closer to what we have in the West. So we have to remember that we are only 10% of the population of the world between Europe and the United States. 90% of the populations have totally different considerations. Uh, they want economic growth, they don't want the well-being, they want to be able to live the way we do, or it's close as the way we do. And that's a balance that has to be struck. You know, Sharif, two comments on that. One is that something like 35 or 40 percent of the world uh, cooks with waste wood or, or dung or, uh, or uh, agricultural waste. And the World Health Organization says that uh, indoor air pollution is the biggest uh, environmental problem in the world today. And of course, as you say, in emerging markets, commercial energy access, among other things, to natural gas 
is a very important way of addressing that. And the other thing that resonates for me with what you're saying is that, uh, that when you look at the scale of what's involved in energy transition, as you say, it involves a you know, fundamental shift in the energy foundations of a huge world economy. And the subject that I'm really researching now and focused on is the supply chains. And what is actually going, you know, it's not just policies, it's not just money, it's not just uh, uh, words, but it's materials that you need to do that. And I think you point to the fact that uh, that, that aspect of what's going to be required physically uh, is not understood. And that, of course, creates, as you say, part of the context for thinking about the future of LNG. So I think LNG will be a very important component of that transition. I'm not quite sure yet that we understand we're transitioning to what. Um, Because everything is going to have to go back. There's no free lunch. Right. Well, Sharif, thank you very much for taking the time for this Sirwe conversation. We've covered a lot of ground uh, from uh, the commoditization of the LNG market, its growth, uh, striking price changes in a very short period of time that have to do with available supply, I think what's one of the most striking points Sharif makes is the integration of the US and uh, global LNG and gas markets. He says it's not fully there yet, but certainly moving in that direction. And then these larger questions about what the demand will be, how it will be met, and what kind of business models will be required to uh, serve the LNG market in the future. So Sharif, I wanna thank you very much for joining us for this Sirwe conversation. It's a pleasure talking with you. Dan, it's always a pleasure talking to you. You ask the best questions. Well, thank you. And I want to thank everybody for joining us for this Sirwe conversation with Sharif Suki, Executive Chairman of Tellurian. And thank you on behalf of IHS Market for joining us. Thanks again for tuning in to another Sirwe conversation presented by IHS Market. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at sirweek.com.